Hello and welcome to the Forward Unto Dawn podcast, the show exploring the fiction of the Halo series. I'm David and I'm joined by my guest, Haruspis, a fellow lore fan who we previously had on episode 22 earlier this year. How's it going? Yeah, that was that is going well, thank you. That was the uh, Complete History of Halo one, wasn't it? The yeah. um, Waypoint article. Yeah, I think it was a good episode, personally. Mm. I'll put a link in the show notes for people who haven't heard it. Um, We've brought you on today to talk about Halo Legacy of Onyx, which is the newest Halo novel published earlier this month. Uh, It was written by Matt Forbeck and serves as a continuation of plot points in two previous entries he penned, um, Lessons Learned from the Halo Fractures Anthology and the 2015 novella New Blood. I guess before we get into this book, we should talk, um, get your thoughts on Forbeck's previously wor- previous work in the franchise. New Blood, I really liked. I've seen a lot of <clears throat> mixed opinions about it uh, as sort of time has gone on. But I remember sat on the train reading it. I was on a two, three hour train ride and it was quite a short book. And I just, I couldn't put it down. I thought that uh, Forbeck has this way of capturing a certain voice in his stories and the way that he did... Nathan Fillion uh, as Buck in that book. It's like I could just hear him in my ear reading the story to me. So I really like that one. Uh, Lessons Learned. It's been a while since I read that. Um, but I remember I remember it th- thinking like, yeah, this is this is interesting setup for a cool story idea, but it's not really it's not gone anywhere yet. So I want to wait and see where it goes. Yeah, and it's as it turns out, basically, feels like at least at this point, half the stories in Halo Fractures have gotten a novel follow-up. Mm. Yeah. Uh, including this one. A lot of good ones, actually. The yeah. Smoke and Shadow was fantastic. Yeah, I think in, in general, I think I've been more happy with the novel follow-ups than the short stories possibly because they were they did feel like they were setups for something bigger. I think really only uh, whatever the the ferret team short story was was the only one that really felt of a necessary truth I think it was. Yeah, because it's yeah. the only one that seems like it's telling its own story as well as setting up the plot threads for Hello Envoy. Yeah. So I think that was a little more successful mm. on its own. Uh but we have this which is I think Judging from the feedback I've seen online, it seems like reception has been mixed. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'd say that's the impression I've gotten. Which I feel like at this point, I, there should be a, a rule about Halo novels and that anything that tries to follow up Ghosts of Onyx is already setting itself up <laughs> for failure and fan expectations. Yeah. <laughs> it happened Pretty with much. the Kilo 5 trilogy, and now it, it happens mm-hmm. with Legacy of Onyx, I think. Yeah. It's uh, it, those are big boots to fill, you know. And in all fairness to it, so you've got you've got to admire the uh, the gumption it takes to sort of take on that particular narrative. Yeah, I think for most, I would say um, you may disagree with me. But I would say for most of the old, longtime Halo fans, either Fall of Reach or Ghost of Onyx are usually the standout for favorite Halo novels. Absolutely. I mean, before uh, before the Forerunner saga came along and gave me Cryptum, I would often say, no, Ghost of Onyx, my favorite, Spartan 3's, coolest bit of lore ever. So, you know, I- I'm very much in that camp myself. Yeah, and I think I'm 
going to spoil everything based on what I've read from you posting on Halo Archive and stuff that you liked it a lot. I did. Uh, big overall net positive to me. There were some things that didn't work for me quite so well, and I'm sure we'll get into that stuff later, but my overall impression is positive. Yeah, I think I am one of the people who is more positive on the Kilo 5 trilogy as a whole, and I think uh, the Halo... The Halo, <laughs> the Halo body as a whole, um, mm. but I think the Halo Nation, as some yeah, people call it, I think like the Kilo Five trilogy, Legacy of Onyx suffers a bit because it's set up in people's mind as a a sequel to Ghost of Onyx when mm. it's using similar characters, it's using a similar setting, but it's not trying to be that at all. No. Um, and so I think Legacy of Onyx suffers a little through no fault of its own just by what we as Halo fans bring to it and what kind of stories we're hoping for. I'm probably, Danny in the, the chat described uh, what he had read thus far of the book as Halo, Mary, Sue, and the MacGuffins, <laughs> which I think is the harsh end of the spectrum. And I guess I'm in between uh, you two. I liked it. Um, I definitely see what, some people are reacting to very negatively about it, but I think overall, whether or not you like it or not, it's definitely probably one of the most different Halo novels we've gotten in a while. Absolutely, yeah. That's what really made it stand out to me. Yeah, I would say since the the Forerunner trilogy, this is probably the most radical departure mm. stylistically and what it covers. Yeah, you occasionally get these kind of turning points where, you know, you started off with Fall of Reach, uh, and then eventually we came around to getting like uh, flashback stories and anthologies, stuff like Contact, Harvest, Evolutions, Cryptum. And you know, every now and then there's this kind of, they're going to turn the coin, do something a little bit different, because a lot of Halo's stories, I think, have very similar kind of narratives, outlines, plots, that sort of thing. But then sometimes something comes along and it's like, oh, oh no, this is this is giving us a new take on something that we've not really seen before. Yeah, we uh, I think we we were talking about it in either our our podcast on Halo Envoy or uh, I think Halo Retribution actually that humans find Forerunner thing or other and end up having to destroy it describes a huge amount of <laughs> uh, the fiction both good and bad yeah so it is kind of uh, a trope at this point while this has elements of that um i think just the, the stylistic decisions uh really change that up so even if we're experiencing a similar story it comes off in a much different fresher way yeah, they they stress different parts of it and place emphasis in different places. Like the uh, the forerunner threat in this one, ultimately, is a bit of a footnote at the end, whereas the main focus is on primarily <laughs> an interspecies high school drama. Yeah, and I think there's we'll get into it just soon, but it's basically there are two enemy alien threats which are ultimately tangential to what is going on in the mm. main story. So it is kind of a different. It would be like if Forward into Dawn like, didn't have those final two episodes. It was all just <laughs> Lasky hanging out at school and no one really likes him. That's actually exactly what I've got uh, written in my notes. Here. It says um, interspecies high school drama similar to Forward into Dawn. But if you imagine that Lasky 
had Sangheili and Ungoy sort of classmates at school. <laughs> yeah, there's a sort of there's a similar narrative intention for those respective periods there because Ford Unto Dawn starts out with the UNSC and insurrection conflict and it builds up to the Covenant War exploding into the setting. Legacy does something similar to that, but with the created on the periphery of Halo Five. So there's a sort of like there's a connective tissue between those two stories. Mm-hmm. All right, so you want to dive into going through a blow-by-blow with this book? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Uh, I guess spoilers will be discussed if we haven't already spoiled something. I wasn't really paying attention. But if you want to read the book unmolested, you should do that now and then come back. So, chapter one. <laughs> uh, we get start off like all good traumatic teenage stories with a flashback. Mm-hmm. Uh, we introduce our main character, Molly Patel, who was on Paris 4 when it got burned to the ground when she was seven. Mm. And I think one of the first things that struck me is she describes um, the arrival of the Covenant, which I don't feel like we've ever really gotten a big from the boots on the ground uh, description of a foreigner. From a child, even. Yeah, from a, from a kid. Uh, it's usually like we've um, Master Chief sees the glassing of the planet from orbit in the beginning of the Fall of Reach, etc. Um, and it really struck me as Matt Forbeck watched the Halo 4 opening cutscene because yes. it, it really feels like, oh, you've got the, the ships coming in and they shoot out a bunch of smaller craft and then there's a bunch of elites just kind of murdering people, ha ha ha, and then they start glassing things. <laughs> Uh, that was the exact image that came to mind when I was reading it. It's like th- this feels like a sort of like uh, the the Halo Four prologue scene where you see the the big Covenant ship and it just starts spilling out thousands and thousands of other like, smaller craft to uh, to begin like the invasion. We're seeing that almost in the same cinematic style, but from Molly who's far away watching it. Yeah, and so Molly is as we start off the Covenant attack has happened. Uh, she is fleeing with her parents. Gotham and Bridget, and their names are not that important because they'll, spoiler alert, soon be dead. Um, but in probably the first twist of expectations, um, they actually aren't killed by the Covenant directly, but they are killed because they crash into another vehicle trying to escape, mm. which I thought was a really nice touch. And horrific as well. I mean, the way uh, Molly describes waking up and there's that awful smell in the car and she doesn't know what it is. And then she, find, you know, she finds out that her parents are dead in the front seats. Really horrific. And they, they have a nice escalating tension where... No one's really seen the Covenant. They know that they've, they're attacking um, and they're trying to flee. And they got they basically got a late start because they were trying to find Molly's sister. And then suddenly the Covenant pop out and start messing up things. And mm. then they, all right, well, we have to go this way. And then they find that that way is blocked. And they're, oh, well, we have another way. And Gotham, for a brief moment, seems like he's going to indulge his like inner Halo fan and Warthog jump across <laughs> the chasm. But he decides not to. <laughs> That reminds me of, um, I don't know if you saw in 2011, the first Halo Fest that they did, and they had um, the voice actors, uh, Tim DiDarbo and Pete Stacker doing the Real Men of Halo song. Oh, yeah. And uh, part, one of the sort of the lines in that song is uh, about careening your way off a cliff with a warthog. And for, for some reason, that just sort of came to mind when I was reading that. It was like, Real Men of Halo. Halo. 
<laughs> yeah, it also um, reminds me there is, uh, I remember it because someone did a little interlude for a, a Halo Gaff community, a now Halo Era community montage where um, you could, with some effort, drive a flatbed truck across the gap in the final Halo Reach mission. Ah, uh, yes. You're supposed to jump it with um, a mongoose, but for some people that was too boring. No, it seemed too much to us. Sometimes you just want to drive a big truck. <laughs> I mean, really, he probably would have made it if he had just realized that he was in a Halo novel. It's possible. <laughs> uh, but Molly's parents die tragically, um, and she herself is rescued by no, no one else than Sergeant Johnson. Oh, <gasps> <laughs> I heard some people complaining about the cameos in here, which there are several. This did not bother me at all. No, not at all. It was a, a very small moment. And uh, see, Matt Forbeck has this thing. He's got this quirk with his writing. You see it in New Blood where he likes to take a certain legendary figure from like the past and uh, make them a sort of inspiration for the protagonist. So in New Blood... It was Palmer who was the source of inspiration for Buck becoming a Spartan Four, and in this one, it's a comparatively smaller role where Johnson just appears, and the only the only way we have to identify him is she sees his name on his uniform, and that's it. Yeah, they, he never has any like, and that's why I think I think a lot of complaints about this book start talking about like what are fan fiction tropes that it perhaps indulges in, etc. Having your your main character meet and be important uh, with all these other main characters is one of those problems. Well, I think this doesn't have that at all because Johnson doesn't like have a heart to heart. Let's talk about how you're doing, etc. He's basically just a soldier doing his job. And that yeah. in itself is what inspires Molly. There's not even like a moment where it's like, Oh, he lights up a cigar and he says some funny one line or anything. He's just, he's just yeah. there. He's just there. He's got to go, uh, Possibly, probably not contract Boren syndrome at some point. <laughs> when that was the other thing that I didn't really think about until I had them. Like, oh yeah, Paris Four. Like we've heard about this way back in First yeah. Strike. This is a thing. <laughs> um, so it was nice to get a look at that. That first that moment, which would live in history, is where he becomes uh, resistant to the flood. Yep. Supposedly, supposedly, maybe we don't know. Which ah, the, a total side note, but. It's one of those annoying like games of fan telephone where people have taken the the lines from the Halographic novel, which seem to suggest that uh, Boren syndrome, basically that they hide Johnson's Orion participation in the in Orion program from Halsey by saying, oh, well, he contracted Boren syndrome, and that's why he's immune, <laughs> which somehow got turned into Boren syndrome doesn't exist at all. <laughs> and that seems ridiculous like no we see it oh. we see it in um halo wars genesis i think halo wars genesis um or it might have actually gotten brought up in smoke and shadow but either way i think it was uh john forge's dad or something or relative mm -hmm. so either way like if you're trying to hide something you don't come up with a fake disease to do it <laughs> especially since you're trying to fool one of the smartest characters in the galaxy so, i do like that uh, the initials of that disease are bs though like <laughs> maybe that's what people latched onto more yeah that's my pet peeve uh, but either way we jump from there to uh september of 2558 and aranuka 
is possibly how it's pronounced. Probably not, but I don't shell out for the audio versions of these books. So <laughs> I mispronounce stuff all the time. Uh, and it's a floating city over um, a submerged atoll somewhere in what we have as Polynesia. And this led me to a question of sea levels in Halo. Mm. Um, because this is one of those things I remember um, there was a really good uh, theory post back in the old days of halo.bungie.org about the idea that the Halo, the world of Halo had experienced traumatic uh, sea level rise like what we are possibly slated for with climate change and then at some point it had been reversed because of the the high and dry uh, dry docks and stuff in new Bombasa you see in Halo 2 and Halo 3. Yeah. Versus this suggests that like sea levels had basically risen and taken over whatever the landmass previously was. So this interesting idea that uh, I'd like to see explored in like a reference book or something at some point, which, uh, you know, similar to Warfleet, but for planets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it doesn't, doesn't seem like it's really important to a lot of things, but it was something tangential I thought was interesting. And so how would you bring that into into a story proper beyond sort of like vague bits of exposition? As it is, this book actually gives us probably more home front stuff than we ever have gotten since, I guess, the beginning of the Kilo 5 trilogy. Yeah. Um, and that this this city she's in is basically a ghost town because it was rebuilt around a damaged orbital tether as part of uh, Project Rebirth. <laughs> so the UNSC's <laughs> big propaganda push about how we're going to fix everything happened um, after we got attacked. And yet there are not really that many people here. Um, and Molly herself is there because her her um, adoptive parents, which get called new parents here, <laughs> which is kind of weird, but then using adoptive parents every single time would get really old really fast. Uh, they are scientists, and they are studying something over there. And so they moved from Cleveland, or no, not Cleveland, uh, Wisconsin, I believe. Yeah. Uh, Wisconsin out to here. And the precipitating action of this book is they sit her down and say that they're going to be moving again, and teenage drama ensues. The, um, the new parents' nomenclature is interesting because you've got to imagine that that might be quite common um in halo 13 post-war and you know it's it might just it might i don't know if it's something that molly herself came up with or if it's an actual term i can't remember but uh, it's an interesting piece of well it's it's capitalized which makes me think that it is sort of like a supposed to be a term that yeah as you say like there would be a lot of displaced families and orphans and such in the halo universe it makes sense that it would that you would construct a word because that's faster than saying adoptive parents every single time. Yeah, it's cool. I, I like it as a sort of 26th, pe- 26th century piece of slang almost. And you get little details like to set up Molly's teenage angst that basically all the other kids were dicks to her because she was one of the few that actually survived a glassing and the UNSC tried to, which wasn't great. And then later on we find when she moved, uh, to the space tether basically everyone there was similarly had had family die but because they had died on different planets they formed different cliques basically on whose disaster they had survived and she was also ostracized there 
There's an interesting kind of setup there for, you know, the whole sort of theme of being an outcast in this in this novel. I, I, I found it quite a uh, quite an emotional and grounded way of setting up her character like that. Mm-hmm. And we also uh, get a little more than, I think, or at least explicit clarification on that, yes, the rank-and-file civilians know about foreigners. Because mm. um, that's been a big question for, for a while. Like, how much do they know? Yeah, we've, we've, we've known that at least scientists knew. And this I think this whole book opens up a little more that probably they know a little more than people supposed, uh, even with Oni's controls. Um, there's a bit that we'll get onto later, I think, about a specific point there. And then my, my last notes for this section uh, were there's the possible continued problem of hereto unknown scientists who are totally experts on the forerunners, <laughs> <laughs> which is Molly's parents, which is why they are going to be sent off to Onyx, because that's where all the smart foreigner experts are going. But man, there seem to be a lot of them. <laughs> They certainly seem to be cropping up uh, sort of now and then as sort of, I remember in Hunters in the Dark where it's like, oh, we need someone who's not Dr. Halsey to be a super forerunner genius. So they came up with Luther Mann <laughs> and he, he wasn't particularly well received as a character. But uh, I think owing to the sort of the general kind of absence of Molly's new parents in this, Asher and Nihong, um, and how they sort of more serve to the emotional side of the story. I was a bit more, I gave it a bit more leeway than I did in Hunters in the Dark. It also has the benefit of taking place years after too, like three years yes. after Hunters in the Dark. So it's a little more understandable uh, that you have more people who are uh, knowledgeable of the foreigners. And uh, This is Halo 5 time. So they are, yeah, they've had time to uh, to study and understand these things a bit better than mm-hmm. they would have before. I don't think we ever get any idea of what the foreigner stuff they're studying in Polynesia is, though. No, I didn't make any notes on that. Yeah, it just seems like there's apparently something near the space tether uh, that was occupying them for a while. But they they get to go to Onyx instead. Um, and they're like, everything's going to be fine. It's going to be super safe. You're going to love it. <laughs> um, smash cut to Spartan 3's Tom and Lucy fighting a bunch of foreigner soldiers. <laughs> and I had the note here. There's some rough dialogue. Yeah. They're going to like attack them, period, with our weapons. <laughs> Which wasn't particularly great. Um I think they they get better dialogue going on going further, but this was not a great start for Tom and Lucy. No, certainly not. I think part of the problem for me is well, I'm still vehemently against what happened with Lucy in Glasslands, where you know her post-traumatic vocal, vocal disarticulation was magically cured because she just hated Halsey enough in the moment. So I don't think they've really had an opportunity to to say, let's find Lucy's voice like, as a character. How does she sound? How mm-hmm. does she, you know, express herself? So I feel like that's part of how. That, that's fed into the way the dialogue's been written in this book, is that they're not really sure what her unique kind of voice is. Yeah, and I think they they get sort of close to it in this book, but I think they miss an opportunity to give her some characterization on that standpoint with her relationship with Molly, but it unfortunately doesn't really go anywhere. No. Um, and then the other thing that I know people got pissed off about is they sort of imply here uh, that they were fighting soldiers during the onyx conflict 
<laughs> instead of Sentinels. <laughs> And even then, it's not Onyx Sentinels. It's just the standard. Yeah, the, the descriptions re- suggest that they're they're standard Sentinels instead of Onyx Sentinels, which is kind of a pretty dumb, like straight up mistake. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it even suggests it goes as far as to say that uh, the planet Onyx was made up of aggressor Sentinels rather than Onyx ones. Yeah, which, I mean, there's no real way to get around that. That should have been caught and fixed. Uh, I was quite obsessed about that because the Onyx Sentinels were a massive game changer in Ghosts of Onyx at the end where the planet disintegrates. There are trillions of them out there and we haven't seen them in 11 years. Yeah, I was kind of expecting them to like mention because they, they do a bit of, uh, later on they do a bit of scientific hand-waving to explain how Onyx is a thing. And I was expecting to say, oh, yeah, the, the Sentinels got absorbed or something when it went into real space <laughs> or something that, that solved it. But instead, they kind of ignore them. You know, one might almost imagine that the Onyx Sentinels would have been better served as Cortana's sort of inf- way to enforce the mantle than the Guardians. Yeah, that, that's actually a possibility. Because these are things that can wipe out, like, that do wipe out a whole Covenant fleet in uh, Ghost of Onyx when they go up against uh, Voro. Although, as we see in uh, Halo Wars 2, the aggressor Sentinels can can <laughs> become quite a, a force if they all get together Yeah, stop shooting pew-pew lasers. I'm just picturing in my head uh, a Return of the Jedi kind of situation where you've got the Onyx Sentinels kind of like, like as the Empire, and then you've got all these Spartans and that in Onyx throwing rocks at them and defeating them that way. <laughs> we were the Ewoks all along. <laughs> so there's this back and forth between Molly, and they ultimately, yes, we're all going to Onyx. Um, and uh, we learn a couple of things pretty quickly uh, that are new uh, that we hadn't known that not only are elites there, but grunts are there. Yes. On Trevelyan, which gets called Onyx, which also gets called Trevelyan, which is kind of confusing. And there's also Sarcophagus and Shieldworld 0006 or Shields. It, it just, the titles just keep on coming. Uh, well, that leads right into my next note, which is Pet Peeve, when in-universe characters have the same name for stuff as fans, uh, which hit me couple of times specifically for the great schism and the blooding years which don't seem like terms that specifically the elites would necessarily use um or that necessarily the humans would it doesn't seem like you don't like they would say oh it's the elite civil war or something like that so that that struck me as a little weird even though that's probably a specific personal complaint no i get it yeah so uh molly's not happy about this move but we cut away from her to because someone at 343 said, hey, like, I imagine somewhere in a deep, dark recess of the studio, there's this long whiteboard, which is just <laughs> the list of dangling plot threads. And someone was, like, about to pull off, hey, what's 343 Guilty Spark been up to since Halo Primordium? And someone said, no. And instead went over <laughs> to the Thursday War and pulled out Dural and Dama. The son of Jewel, who we have not seen since basically five years ago. <laughs> I think we got a brief mention of him uh, for in Mythos, in, in Mythos, and a, basically an acknowledgement that he existed in uh, the catalog posts on Halo Waypoint. Yes, but other than that, nothing much. Um, but yes, he's the self-styled Pale Blade, uh, and we learn that in the aftermath of the death of Telcam. 
which we saw in Tales from Slipspace. Tales from Slipspace, the comics anthology. Dural has taken over the Servants of the Abiding Truth, which we also get explicit um, clarification that they are not at all related to the uh, Covenant uh, under Jewel. Um, they're kind of doing their own thing. They're sort of like, uh, if you imagine, to make a Star Wars comparison, they're like Saw Gerrera's partisans in a way compared to the Rebel Alliance, I guess. Yes, referencing knowledge. Uh, yeah, they're they are fighting. They're still fighting against the Arbiter, but they're doing their own thing. Yeah. And so we get... Uh, they show up on the same planet that uh, Jewel popped out of, Hesdros. And um, we get a nice contrast where he popped out of the, the portal from when Onyx when he escaped in the Thursday War and was treated like, oh my god, a messenger of the gods. <laughs> and now the guys are just sick and tired of Jewel and Dama and the Covenant and they just want to be left alone because they I got attacked that. by... Yeah. Uh, the the dissonance there between you know you've got uh, Panom who's like oh, this is he's a prophet he's going to lead us to salvation and then at the start of this he's like it's another Dharma isn't it yeah it's like oh god and he's like why do you show up there's no way to use the portal to get back to where he came from he's like oh but I have a Huragak which is... <gasps> and so his plan is laid clear I um, have a bit of a problem with that oh um, please explain. Well, it's it's just the idea that, you know, a place like a shield world, especially one like Onyx, which was going to be the uh, the future capital of the Forerunners, that a place so secure could just have this random ass portal on some backwater world that leads into it. It seems like a huge design flaw. Well, it seems like it makes sense in that you can presume under crisis conditions it would be in slit space and thus you wouldn't be able to get to it and you have to have some way to get everyone there rapidly. Mm. But along with the uh, spoilers uh, guardian that shows up, it does kind of lead to more questions and answers about exactly when Onyx was built, what its purpose was um, like, cause from what they give in this book, it starts leading me down to the personal theory of this was like, sort of like project that they had been working on that kind of got turned into a shield world or something like that because it wasn't finished like they're it's the only one that's huge that we know of like maybe they decided oh yeah that we know of uh that maybe they decided oh smaller ones make more sense like it was the only way towards the end of the foreigner flood war that they could work on stuff it's unclear <laughs> and unfortunately this book for people who wanted more clarity on that does not provide it yeah there's some context you can extrapolate in that uh, obviously Re requiem was the first shield world the prototype one that uh, the didact built and there's the whole political conflict between him and the master builder in the wake of the human wars where they're like oh no the halos no the shield worlds and there's that back and forth between them and yeah. in that time the didact is rapidly trying to build all these shield worlds and show to the old council say look guys i've got it all planned out we're going to do this star hopping strategy against the flood it's going to be great and they're like mm, we like this master builders plan actually <laughs> so one wonders especially something that comes up later in the book is um that the guardian in there was meant to oversee the construction of that shield world which is a very interesting and slightly worrisome tidbit of law yeah and it, i think that really signaled to me that, yeah, this was foreigner politics at play because we haven't seen mm. a guardian on any other 
foreigner installation and it sort of suggests maybe hey we're keeping an eye on you like hmm, something was going on there yeah um, interesting fodder for for crazy fan theories and rampant speculation <laughs> but we we cut back to molly on a ship heading towards onyx and we get some big details um technology wise that apparently they're able to get from earth to onyx in a matter of hours this has been coming up a fair bit hasn't it yeah which seems fast i i know i had um for for uh retribution i had the complaint that it seemed like they were zipping around and slip space really fast although they have the the caveat that apparently some things are closer in slip space than their geographical distance etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. and these are apparently the super new special foreigner engines um i mean for all we know they're better than infinities but uh they get this live live uh chat with director barton who has apparently not bollocksed up his job <laughs> and not been sent to midnight facility like his predecessor was on the thursday oh night. irena Poor yeah dr magnuson Although I'm not sure if Barton survived the events of this book, if he might not be on that way too. I guess just Oni has bigger fish to fry to worry about that at this point. Yeah. <laughs> the Milwaukee for, I'm guessing that Matt Forbeck has some connection to that city because that's what the ship's called. <laughs> A kind of big plot dump explaining the events of Ghost of Onyx, which nothing, it felt to me like this was the Halo equivalent of the Mr. DNA animated segment from Jurassic Park where you're kind of on this <laughs> this vaguely Disney like theme park ride and hey let's tell you about the place you're going to that yeah I got the same kind of impression from that yeah yeah and um they so they like we said previously they hand wave some of the science so basically there's the artificial star inside of Onyx and some planets in there uh, that it captured from the Zeta Doradus system but also the actual star is still outside of um, outside of the installation. So it's got some crazy gravitational things going on there that don't make any sense. It's one of those things that's hard to get your head around, which I guess is fitting for you know this particular setting. And in some respects, it's kind of lazy that they hand wave it. On the other hand, like the science is so crazy, like just saying foreigner space magic seems like the most reasonable <laughs> expectation. Like, yeah, we're, yeah. we're still early days of figuring out this reclaimer stuff. We don't know how everything works. I can buy it personally. It's, it's, it's all right to me. Yeah. And so Molly says, Oh, this, this might be an adventure after all, because it's a big honking space thing. I can't even get my head around. Um, I liked one of the details I liked that sort of nails how huge it is, is that they, they, mention which is really a, a thing towards halo fans how we've always seen the mega structures kind of go up into the horizon uh, mm. and the rings and they say yeah that happens here but you can't even see it because it's so huge the horizon basically looks like a horizon because it's so vast that you can't even yeah. see the curvature true two astronomical units isn't it yeah it's huge mm. i remember at the end of ghost of onyx where linda has to use her sniper rifle actually to see the uh, the curvature of the um of the sphere yeah which is something i i had forgotten and i i forgot to look up so the size is given in ghost of onyx correct yeah yeah so that's that's one of those things i i think back uh especially with this novel and like you know maybe 343 would have liked to have modified that size a bit <laughs> <laughs> maybe not make it so freaking huge um but it is what it is it is what it is 
Um, so Molly sets in, and in the possibly slightly more like this feels like fan fiction thing, they pretty much immediately pop into Tom, Lucy, and Mendez. They stop by for housewarming. <laughs> um, and in a, a trend of questionable security practices by all the adults in this book, <laughs> they spill a whole lot of details <laughs> and don't seem that interested in... It's it's nice to know that even in the 26th century, a kid's idea of eavesdropping is still totally effective. <laughs> you just sit by the stairs and listen downstairs. It works every time, yeah. Well, you know, since they're in such an isolated location, you know, nobody's really going anywhere to leak anything or whatever. And it'd be, it, I guess they would be a bit less kind of, you know. Yeah, they do mention at one point, basically, like, this is where we're going to be for the rest of our lives because yeah. there's no other place to go with more tech than It's this. basic fact to all of them, basically. Yeah. Um, and you kind of get the sense uh, just by the the underlying thing that Molly wants to go off against her new parents' wishes and become a Marine when she's of age. And you kind of get the sense that basically that's the only way she would get off of Onyx. Um, <laughs> if, yeah, if you go into the core, because we can control you that way. Um, and I do think while the, the security um, stuff crops up repeatedly and bothers me, the book does do a good job of when Molly's thinking about stuff on the installation etc she's always thinking oh well that makes sense on the other hand oni probably meant it this way like when she describes uh, a school building uh, she mentions how it's designed to be open and accessible but probably because oni designed it that way to spy on people <laughs> um, and i think that was a nice touch of except for hunt for truth i don't think we've really ever gotten the fact that yeah like it's like some eastern european secret police like Oni is everywhere, <laughs> and like, especially for her who grew up during the war, like that's all she knows. Yeah, um, and that's part of what makes her a fascinating um, perspective to have as the character, main character of the story, because she's part of this generation that hasn't known anything else except the Covenant War. Mm -hmm. And I think really the only previous, um, really, acknowledgement towards that was in First Strike when. Um, I want to say Corporal Locklear, or is it Locklear or was it one of the Marines? I can't remember, but either way, there's a character who kind of doesn't really know that much about the insurrection, and they point out, oh, yeah, well, <laughs> that kind of petered out because of the threat of alien domination. But yeah, there was this, <laughs> this insurrection going on, guys. And so Mendez lays out uh, basically why Molly's parents are there. It's because they're experts, again. Uh, but they were apparently studying um, a guardian that they found on another planet, although it is not revealed as a guardian to the people. Project the Goliath. Movie. Project Goliath, which is... Goliath actually really sounds cool. I like that. Mm. Um, it calls to mind the old uh, concept arts for the other kind of guardian designs that they had. Yeah. The the kind of... Uh, well, the, the one on Epitaph, you mean? or um the halo 5 ones where they they looked very different to, oh, yeah. uh, to what they are now bird like and, and they were called titans i think they used to be called mm -hmm. uh but it gets some uh interesting lore details here not only that a they have discovered guardians um so that's made explicitly clear before the events of halo 5 but also uh that they basically started waking up uh, to some degree right after the events of Halo 4. They mentioned um, that a year ago they started getting rumblings. Mm. 
Uh, so that would put it in September of 2557, so right after the events of Halo 4. So that's that's interesting for people's time frames and when Cortana might have started doing things. I suspect as that uh, as that develops, I'll have some things to complain about that. Oh, okay. Well, we look forward to an article complaining about that in the future. <laughs> Molly then sees an elite through her window and flips out. Uh, and that's Kasha there, uh, who's a school teacher. Headmistress. Mm, yeah, and she has an after-school special moment, which feels a bit abrupt, where she like realizes, wait a minute, I hate them because they killed all my friends, but like, what would it be like in their situation? And Which was a little on the nose and I think a bit sudden for the rest of her character development, but it moves her on that she's not a total jerk. She realizes that her hate is to some degree irrational. Well, see, this is what I really connect. This is what I really personally connected to with Molly. Um, because as far the sort of the way I took her was she is Vaz Belloy from the Kilo five books, but done right. In my opinion, um, she, you know, we start off with that prologue sequence we discussed in Paris four and how awful and traumatic that is for us, you know, for anyone, but for a seven year old child in that situation who is now going through, you know, um, being a teenager, puberty and all that. And there's, she's a mess of emotions already on top of the, well, and I, I appreciate that we don't get like a PTSD plot or something because, frankly, those don't either seem to be done well or they kind of amp up the drama. But like she does mention, oh yeah, and I regularly have nightmares about this, <laughs> so it's not great seeing <laughs> yeah. them in real life. Yeah, but uh, she, even with like you know her uh, passive prejudices, shall we say, she naturally tends towards empathy and the pursuit of understanding with these alien characters. There's a lot of you know those passages where you said it's quite on the nose. Like, hmm, I haven't thought of it that way. But actually, talking it out with this individual here has made me consider a different perspective, and I like what that's going for. I really like sort of the more positive, you know, wearing its wearing its heart on its sleeve kind of idea that it's going for. Yeah, and um, I know some people were complaining that there's only grunts and elites on the planet, um, but personally I didn't find that at all surprising, <laughs> considering they have been the most consistent, they're apparently the most consistent allies of the Swords of St. Helios, and mm. it is a top-secret installation. Maybe in the future, you know? Yeah, and I do question the wisdom of putting your 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 hope for the future cosmopolitan city on your super secret installation but <laughs> i i appreciate the effort that uh yeah um that sort of gets into another kind of idea that i had is that why onyx why did it have to be onyx not not that i mean that intentionally as like a criticism of the book but the uh, the whole idea they've got going here with the story itself this could have effectively been told on any any other setting, any other planet. Yeah, I definitely think so. And I, I think that's a reasonable criticism that some people have had about how it's putting maybe bigger stakes than it should have onto this book. Yeah. Um, especially, I really hope that they like tilled over the, the fields. They were growing the genetically modified plague <laughs> crops. And, so no one you notices just... that. 
<laughs> I'm just imagining um, like a school trip with um, the Sangheili characters and Cash is just like, and if you look to your right, you'll see the uh, the crops that only was uh, growing just a few years ago to genocide our species. Yeah, I, I guess they decided against that because it's not come up since. No. I know some people were upset that Oni would resort to that, which didn't make much sense to me. I'm like, no, of course they're going to be terrible bastards. Like, that's what they do. <laughs> but I guess they decided probably it was it was too likely to blow back on their elite allies or something. And uh, I just wish that they'd had uh, Jewel use that as like leverage with the, with the Arbiter at some point that he revealed to someone that this is what Oni was doing. This was what was going on, but they yeah. never really had any consequences for it. And now yeah. it's swept under the rug. Although I, I feel like it's one of those things where I know a lot of people want more Arbiter perspectives because it's hard to say exactly what's going on in his head, but I get the sense that he pretty much knows <laughs> he's got a few <laughs> friends in the UNSC like Hood and everyone else is probably willing to get him. You can imagine uh, how those meetings would go. Just Lord Hood walking in just like, oh, Arbiter, we've got this situation. Even in the Thursday war, he basically accepts their help because uh, it's like, uh, I really don't have any other choice. Like this sucks. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but while everyone's getting settled in, uh, Durrell opens the portal, um, and I really like, he really wasn't anybody but an angry character in the Kill 5 trilogy, and so here we get to see him a few years on, and he's still kind of angry. Um, I think people were comparing him to, uh, what's his name? Kylo Ren. Awakens, which I do not think is a an apt comparison. Um, no. Um, because... Well, I think that Doral is an interesting kind of parallel to Molly in a way, because Molly is, you know, she is herself angry from everything that's happened to her. But the point of her story is that she comes to realize that the, while the depths of her anger are deep, she can only draw on it so much. It's like its depths are finite. She eventually has to sort of give way and, and you know, um, she eventually becomes friends with these alien characters. Whereas Doral has lost like Molly and he just keeps on drawing from this endless kind of toxic whirlpool that uh, his ideas of Sangheili society perpetuate. Yeah, and I saw some criticisms that his motives were pretty shallow and I thought they they made sense is that he's out for revenge and he's still following the servant's belief that, yeah, the Arbiter is killing our people. Um, and I think it's interesting in that they specifically pivot him as someone who basically grew up right when elite society was falling apart. And so he's kind of got this make saying Helios great again mantra that <laughs> is based on basically a fiction. Um, yeah. And so I think that, that gives him depth. And he's also, he's got some brains, uh, which always helps <laughs> your villains. Um, that, um, for instance, he like makes this show of, offering the Kadon, oh, well, we'll leave you some war material to compensate you for your losses, even <laughs> though it's actually, well, I can't take this stuff with me, so I'm going <laughs> to make it grease the wheels a bit and make him happy while also covering my butt. It shows that he's got things going on. We also get a, a detailed sort of history to fill in the gaps since we've last seen him. Um, he's definitely got daddy issues, which <laughs> is understandable. Uh, <laughs> but he he definitely as we talked about is not running off to Jules covenant he thinks that that's kind of like a dumb idea um and he's got basically two griping lieutenants with him um and you get the sense that he's 
he was Telcam's chosen successor, and not everyone's happy about that. Um, no, I mean, you know, he's he's lost pretty much everything. He's lost his mother. She died. Ryan Dharma died. Uh, his father is, you know, leader of the covenant, and he's angry at him. He doesn't know what's happened to his brother. Telcam has died. It's just him, basically, and he's got this these boots to fill as the leader of the Servants of the Abiding Truth, which he was appointed to. He wasn't uh, chosen by or like, elected or anything. He's just been sort of put into this role. So you can see why he has to come across so strongly, why he feels he has to compensate yeah. for the situation that he's found himself well, in. Well, as we find out by the end of the book, basically everyone's gunning for him. <laughs> he never comes <laughs> off as paranoid, but he's pretty aware of like, this is going to be a problem I'm going to have to deal with sooner or later. Yeah. Um, and the other facet i liked of his leadership is that you got the sense that telcam was a mentor but he's also kind of conflicted with telcam's goals um that mm. he basically seems to have doubled down on telecom got killed by humans because he was nice to humans and he thought that they were means to an end and i don't think that they can be used as means to an end they just had to be killed um so like on top of blaming them for uh raya's death as well yeah so in that way he's very much more of despite being a lot more dimensional than, I guess, a Nylandian elite of classic Halo back in the before time when everything was simple and black and white and we were just killing aliens <laughs> without thinking about their feelings. Uh, he definitely feels more like a classic elite in that sense. He talks about, um, at one point, like, oh, God, Telcam made me learn this stupid, dumb language of theirs. And like, oh, I would just much rather be killing them. So he's got this nice duality between his... I guess you could say simple elite nature that he wants and the fact that, yeah, he's got a small force. He's got to be clever. He's got to be quiet. It's interesting in how the, you know, the way I sort of look at this uh, is the, the way this book does the Umdama family as a whole is 343's response to the criticisms they've had, certainly the ones that I've made, uh, regarding their handling of Jewel, basically. And they said, okay, we're going to double down on um, the children, um, of the Amdamas and see what we can do with their stories. Uh, and so we cut back to uh, Molly's point of view, where in true teenage fashion, she's already bored of the magic, wonderful installation <laughs> uh, and it goes to school. <laughs> um, and here they, they definitely give a lot more of the, the feeling of, yeah, these kids are all, they all grew up only knowing the war. Um mm. And so we get more of that perspective and the justifiedly paranoid uh, sense that Oni is everywhere uh, and that they're really just along for this ride. Um, and uh, we quickly get, I really love the the fact that the whole idea of Paxopolis, which is this, this mutual city, um, there's the PR version and the school lunchroom reveals the reality that everyone's still kind of segregated. Um, the grunts have their, their warrens, the, Elites have their keeps, uh, the humans have their houses, and no one's quite mixing. The cynical Molly's like, of course. As an aside, it's one of the greatest pieces of lore ever that the Angoy live in essentially hobbit holes in a giant hill. That is fantastic. Whoever it was that suggested that idea. <laughs> Whoever suggested that idea, I love them. They're fantastic. Yeah, and so... We get the usual, oh, where do I sit, pain, which I have to admit, like, I've realized with talking with friends that my high school experience was apparently, like, 
sunshine and rainbows compared to a lot of people's. <laughs> so I didn't feel the same alienation that apparently a lot of people did. Uh, but she ends up uh, sitting down uh, in the 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 dumb basis for friendships she creates the outsider's table which is just <laughs> such a teenager thing we're all outcasts yeah we don't <laughs> like anyone except ourselves which uh but she uh quickly gathers kareem uh which is another human kid um Gudam the grunt oh Gudam, i love her uh, I, I want to adopt her as my daughter she's she was wonderful uh, I was of mind she she reminded me of no one so much as Tilly from the recent Star Trek Discovery show. I've not uh, watched. I'm not that sure yet, if you've no. seen it. Uh, well, she is a very excited uh, cadet who talks way too much um, and has boundless enthusiasm. Mm. At one point, saying basically, "Yeah, science." <laughs> I'm all about characters like that. I, you know, I love the. Uh, she really is the optimistic heart of this story, and she's such an endearing character to me. I, I really hope we see her again. Well, it's definitely interesting that I would say all the grunts here are a break with tradition in that they generally seem to be sunshiny optimists. Whereas I would say for a lot of the grunts we've seen previously, even when they were they were fun characters like the Dob, etc., they were basically fatalists <laughs> which mm. makes sense i guess because they were stuck in the covenant basically enslaved and these guys are off on this great new place where we're all friends and so they are, yeah, they are they've got hope now you know yeah. that, that things are going to be different and that's really interesting because they're no longer just the comic relief they these are sympathetic and empathetic and interesting characters i'd say yeah um and another detail we get along with the hobbit holes is apparently that Gadam has uh two mothers and three fathers yes I'm which some people with. immediately went to massive grunt orgies for um, <laughs> i didn't know if that was it seemed to me more like they were leading towards oh well you have like this co-parentage system because you've got so many kids that they basically their community structures are much looser and not so rigidly defined or maybe they they take like five or six people to contribute dna i don't know you could read that multiple why ways. not both yeah that's also true could be um <laughs> but once we've quickly established these guys it's time to bring in our high school villains <laughs> um who are carl zeb and andres um and there's a rumble because they they pick on uh one of the sangheili who's off on his own and they're jerks uh the the plucky the plucky grunt tries to defuse the situation and gets smacked in the face for her trouble um and so molly gets involved and amazingly there are because it's a rule in high school fiction there are never adults around to defuse no. fights like this especially when it's a bunch of species that kind of hate each other that's apparently not a big <laughs> issue um, no i just look leave them to their own devices you know lord of the fly situation why not yeah that'll that'll totally be fine it's kind of interesting though because the whole thing is ultimately kind of an experiment so how would this be if there weren't any adults in here how would you know that situation play out i can see why it might have been that way even if it is kind of unbelievable yeah um and so for their trouble they all get grounded um and then lucy comes by to say, hey, I'm doing a self-defense class, so this won't happen again. <laughs> and it's totally not a transparent way to bring you all together in some sort of breakfast club. 
(laughs) (laughs) Which, this is where I felt um, like Lucy coming back. She said it was, like, basically it's on her own. We learned that it's basically on her own. um, It's of her own volition. It's not like she's ordered to do this or something. And I felt like this was the missed opportunity to have, because the Spartan 3s basically are still teens. um, And so I felt like there were, Maybe there was this attempt to try and link Molly and Lucy because, yeah, they both apparently don't spend a lot of time with kids their age. Like, they're both outcasts for different reasons. But that never really happened. I was was kind of wishing more for that because it would make, if Lucy had opened up more to Molly, I felt like it would have made a lot more sense of Molly's character at this point. But that didn't really happen. Yeah, it would have been more. It would have been interesting to see more of a sort of relationship build between them, rather than because Lucy plays quite a minor role in the story, and it definitely does feel like a missed opportunity there. Yeah, but it is interesting how Lucy is Lucy and Tom in this self-defense class are effectively, you know, making their own mini Spartans in a way, because um, they have that chat with Mendes, and he is very much aware still of the torturous training routines that he put these kids through as part mm-hmm. threes. And they're making light of it in front of him. And he's just like, God, this is, this is not good. This is, I don't, I don't like this. He, he, re- he responds like completely deadpan while Tom is just like, Hey chief, remember that time. And yeah. uh, they've sort of got this opportunity now, Tom and Lucy to train these kids in an ethical kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, so they end up training together with uh, Godem and um, the, the the elite that got into the scuffle up a car. And Molly gets invited to grunt dinner, which sadly we don't get to see. Um, <sighs> Seafood with the Angoy. Uh, at this point, I wrote down Godem is bad grunt Seinfeld. Um, <laughs> what's up with the food in the mess hall? Um, <laughs> still enjoyable. Uh and we learn that Bakar is basically set off from the other elites because he's a pacifist. Um, and Another outsider. does not go well if you're from no. a warrior culture. And basically, like, that not only was he alone, but the fact that he didn't defend himself uh, just further makes him an outcast. Uh, and otherwise, his origins are mysterious at this point. Yes. I, I really like uh, Bakar. Uh, he's... Uh... And who he is eventually revealed to be. He um, is an interesting sort of like other side of the coin to Dural, obviously. Yeah, and basically everyone, (laughs) one person says, everyone's dead. I'm going to set my life on revenge. Um, Because at one point Dural says, like, in response to why are you doing this? Like, well, they killed my mom. That's good enough reason. Mm. Um, Whereas Bakar lost everyone and pursues, went for peace. Pursues the path of peace. Yeah. Um, but meanwhile, Dural is setting up uh, his forces in a cathedral. I wrote at this point, Baran, his lieutenant, continues to be a grumpy old man. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I don't understand when his point of like why he came along. Like I'd like to know like the side story of what he's doing because he really just seems upset with everything like my bed's too hard yeah. you're like leading them wrong we should just leave well, this is terrible <laughs> um, but they they set up a plan that they need more engineers uh so they're going to capture them from the repository which i believe was uh the location that lucy and the engineer prone to drift end up in 
Glasslands, if I'm not mistaken, right? Oh, it's been a long time since I read that book. Uh, they, they end so, up in uh, a hangar of Forerunner ships, and I think that's what the repository is supposed to be. But then uh, Tom and Lucy uh, get called out to investigate stuff, and they uh, find some more Sentinels. So here we get what I thought were Onyx Sentinels, and I read it again. Yeah. No, those aren't. I got excited. I got really excited because uh, they're in their jackrabbits going along, aren't they? And they're just like, ah, yes, there's some sentinels over here. It's like, are we finally going to see them, the Onyx Sentinels? Are they about? Oh, no, they're just normal aggressors. Okay, never mind. Yeah, so that was that was a little odd, especially since nothing really happens with that. <laughs> it was kind of a vignette that didn't really lead anywhere. Uh, no. They cut back to Molly's first self-defense class, and she gets angry that oh, wait, it's not just me who brought all these aliens and I'm really offended because I could beat this alien up and this alien could beat me up. <laughs> so what's the point? Um, and Lucy says, size matters not. <laughs> begins training. Um, we get a little more of Kasha uh, watching over Molly and you get this sense that uh, she's kind of a surrogate uh, parent figure, especially since Molly's parents are basically freaking out over the Guardian. Mm. I like that because, you know, having an, the, this kind of interspecies relationships now opens up the doors for interesting avenues like that, where a Sangheili can feel this kind of motherly attitude towards a human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so they go, because things have to come to a head, they are go off to a, the repository for a field trip, which, again, I question Oni's security <laughs> measures. Because not only do they not have sensors or an eye on the general area where their arch nemesis jewel and dama left but they take field trips to places they admit they have not fully secured full of active war equipment eh. hey, why not why not uh we get uh another recurring character um mike spencer from the kilo five trilogy who was uh yes he shows up. I uh, last saw him on Venezia, where he was working undercover as an a- Oni agent. Never really had any particular feelings about him as a character, personally. Yeah, was... and that's, that's another uh, cameo that didn't bother me, because he was pretty much mostly a plot device um, in the Cable 5 trilogy. He shows up because they're... Looking for information or they're supposed to. Yeah, they're, they're supposed to extract him, uh, the, and there's some scuffle over that, because they want... Um, the Port Stanley with some jackals and stuff. I barely even remember that now because it's not that important. And then he's uh, more intel on Venezia for the Thursday War and Mortal Dictata. Um, so I didn't mind him popping up. I guess he got promoted. No. It's nice sometimes just to see minor characters reappear yeah, and they, you know, do they whatever. Do things. <laughs> it's not just the important people who move around and have lives. Um, but then a, a giant beast attacks... Uh, I wrote as a Rafakrit, which is probably not at all it. <laughs> I don't know how you think it was pronounced. Rafakrit. Rafakrit. All right, that sounds a little better. I'll go with that That stress and emphasis. Um, but basically it attacks, um, starts messing everything up, and it turns out that it's apparently um, a Sangheili mythical creature. So whether the mythical creature was based on it or they actually had them on a planet... Um, Although the the fun little detail is that apparently 
according to myth, they were scared away by high-pitched noises, and it turns out that whistling attracts them. <laughs> I loved that bit. The, when when Bakar is just like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, the, I guess whoever told whoever told us that story was trying to get us all killed. <laughs> yeah, and there's also a nice uh, another thing where Bakara is saying like, oh, that's a that's a whatever from mythology, and uh, Kasha's like, no, it's not. It's like, no, it totally is. And she's like, oh, wait, no, it is. Uh, and she says at one point, by the gods. And she's like, oh, sorry, force oh, of habit. Sorry. Old habits. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they, they, everything gets shrugged off except for a gossog, and they plug him dead. Um, but it, it quickly turns out that this was all a distraction uh, because Dural wanted to sneak in and snatch uh, prone to drift. Actually, is it prone to drift or is it another engineer? I'm not sure. Uh, but he wants to capture it, uh, and they fail because they get alerted. It is interesting the uh, the the time narrative structure in this book is quite different because you you'll have the events that happen, the sort of the consequences of an event that will happen in the future, which is actually taking place in the past. So you've got the uh, the Rafakrit situation there, and then it's explained how that happens in the next chapter. I quite like that approach the, uh, to the storytelling. Yeah, it's um. Whereas, yeah, a lot of the other action scenes, they, they weave together the, for the most part, they weave together a lot of the perspectives on this. It keeps it separate a lot of the time. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, they, they're all led the beast into the repository that they failed to capture an engineer. And he's partially distracted because he thinks he's seen his brother assume who's <laughs> uh, actually Picara. Dun, dun, dun. <gasps> His brother who went out into the fields and never returned is alive and being a coward. See, I feel I had this spoiled for me, so I, I didn't get to read that with the uh, revelation sort of intact. And I wondered how I would react if I had that benefit. Because as I was reading it, it was just like, oh, yeah, he's he's Asul Mundamba. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it really telegraphed it anywhere before that. And they actually... No. I don't think they, they're really teasing you after this point, but they, they make it clear that until um, Bakara straight up says it, um, assume that he's assume uh, Dural isn't sure. And <laughs> even more importantly, he doesn't really want it to be him. He's definitely like, I'd rather have a dead honorable brother than a alive disgraced one. Well, it was slightly telegraphed in how it was mentioned that his um, his skin tone was lighter than all the other Sangheili, uh, mm-hmm. indicating that he was from Undama. Yeah. At one point, uh, Dural says, "Like, oh well, that that's how you know that we're separated from all those those lame proles. Uh, we're <laughs> um, so the, the in the aftermath, they they raise uh, security because now they know they pretty much figure out oh something got in uh, and it's using the portals. Tom and Lucy do some scouting and figure out okay they have to have an engineer um, and Mendez." doesn't follow basic security and continues to reveal important details. He's getting on in his old age. And I think that's definitely one of those things that by the end, the thing I I really compared a lot of this book to is the structure of, especially with how I think this, this really takes place over a longer period of time than a lot of Halo novels, which usually just take place in a week or something. And they really truncate, time if it goes along with that to certain scenes mm. uh, but this takes place over basically two months a little more the comparison i kept on coming back to was harry potter and man harry potter did these yes. info dumps a lot better 
because <laughs> there's there's someone with the invisibility cloak listening in on Dumbledore, and but there's always this sense of we don't really know what's going on. And you see, um, when the situation with the Rafflecrit happens at the end of that, it's like a parallel to the scene with the uh, with the troll in the bathrooms, yeah. where they, it ends the same way. It says, you know, if there's one thing that was, you know, if anything was going to make us friends, defeating this giant monster was going to be that. So that's how Harry, Ron, and Hermione come together. That's how you know this group comes together. I quite I quite like that. I was the, as soon as I read that, I went and messaged one of my friends who's into both Halo and Harry Potter. I was like, look at this scene. The scene's great. Yeah. And no one needed to stick a wand up a troll's nose. So that's a win. Uh, Yeah, yeah, but man, so I was kind of disappointed that throughout this book, they basically just break down like, well, it's just square to keep this a secret. But and while I could almost go for it for for her parents or her step parents, because there is that like that sense of they're really trying hard to please her and like being indulgent and stuff and they obviously are not Mm. military types the fact that the spartans and mendez do that just took me out of it (laughs) (laughs) like i almost found myself almost wishing like god why isn't molly or the other kid like a hacker or something so they could find this out like have that that uh so she'd be like sully yeah (laughs) yeah just so they are getting this information somewhere other other than like oh, well, I admitted that I realized this. And I'm like, oh, you shouldn't have been listening. But while you were listening, I might as well tell you everything. <laughs> so that, that was a bit uh, downside. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a sort of like, mm, raise your eyebrow kind of at it. It's kind of moment. Um, and I also wrote at this point with this section that Molly's parents are idiots um, because they're sad that they realize they were dumb, that taking a kid to a unsecured massive foreigner installation isn't actually as safe as they said <laughs> and then also uh when mendez says oh well i guess this doesn't matter uh molly doesn't say anything when he kind of explains that oh yeah by the way the halos kill everything <laughs> which i took as a suggestion it's possible because her parents were again just blabbermouths and to let her know but at least some idea of the destructive potential of the halos is known to the wider world it's either that or like they're sort of t- in the writing process they sort of got the fan perspective kind of mixed in there while taking it for granted yeah so that that's something for for fodder oh. it's hard to do because halo is 16 years old now and they've got these stories which are about these new beginnings and people who don't know about the most basic things we've known since 2001 so it's hard to weave that into a narrative in quite a cohesive and natural way yeah and i mean that's probably partially why the perspective of bali works a little better here is that yeah when we do have the info dumps uh from mendez from the onyx shuttle and shortly from prone to drift um (laughs) it at least makes sense that we know this stuff like um so you need at least that outsider perspective where it's plausible that she doesn't. Yeah. And yeah, because uh, come October 2558, Prone to Drift shows up in uh, the school to dump a lot of info. <laughs> <laughs> we learn that uh, at this point, because they helped uh, stop the animal attack at the, the repository, the outcasts are now big damn heroes, as I wrote in my notes. Everyone else is asking about them since this is now into the Halo 5 time period, there's more reports connected to the Guardians. Um, everything's freaking yeah, out. Yeah, the signal's going out, isn't it, to awaken them, the uh, echo location thingy. 
and in the realm of the thing that I did feel tipped over into fan service, um, Prone to Drift shows up and seeks them out because they're special. <laughs> they're they're being good, good reclaimers basically, and allying with other aliens and not fighting. And he's happy about that. I kind of felt warm and fuzzy at that. <laughs> I mean, it is warm and fuzzy, but it's also like, really, <sighs> come on. Yeah. It works on two levels. Yeah. Uh, so Molly listens in again, uh, and learns about uh, the covenant heading to Kamchaka. And at this point I put expletive Molly's parents telling her everything. <laughs> um, and then in rapid succession, we learn that, uh, like in Halo 5, the Covenant is destroyed uh, and Guardians are awakening everywhere else. I did like that there's a, a brief period where basically no one's getting anything done at school because everyone's freaking out about the Covenant and that the news is leaked in. And mm. um, it reminds me of when, basically, uh, when uh, the September 11th attacks happened. I was in middle school. And yeah, like everyone at lunch had been talking about, oh, there's bombings. We don't really know what's going on. And yeah, they basically just let class go home because yeah, we can't teach you anything. You're going to learn about this. Let your parents tell you about this. So that, that resonated as something that was a genuine moment. Um, Mm. That's why I feel that it would have been more effective if the guardian wasn't in this story in Onyx, if everything that was going on was literally happening outside of the shield world. Well, I think the the Guardian is introduced. I know there's the people cynically talk about like um how <laughs> you have some books that are mostly to set up stuff connected to other things and they do it in sort of ungainly ways, like um I think it was Envoy that name dropped the banished a lot. <laughs> you know, yeah. came out around Halo <laughs> Two. And, By the way, did you know the banished is the thing? We totally didn't just invent it. Um, <laughs> even if it fits in a little bit better than a lot of backfield lore stuff. Yeah. But yeah, there's, there's that sense there too of the guardians. But I think the, the bigger thing is they put a guardian there because they needed to solve the fact that Trevelyan is a huge giant, even more than the halos is a huge giant thing that would totally tip the scales of the created conflict. And so they have to do something with it and they do something with it by the end of this. Yeah. And it sort um, of takes us back to where we were in 2006, basically. Yeah. Status quo. Antebellum. Mm. Um, but we, we get through Mendez's just telling everything. Cause why not uh, realize uh, Cortana's involved and this happens shortly before <gasps> Cortana's message hits everybody uh, from Halo five, which yeah. apparently did not reach Dural which I thought was kind of weird because <laughs> yeah. he's confused that the guardian has arisen and shows up. Whereas everyone else is like, Oh wait, this seems likely because it's happened to everything else. Mm. So that was kind of weird. And we get a brief moment of, because Carl is a jerk. He somehow pins it on, a, on Bacar. I'm like, this is all your fault. <laughs> and that's not really true. That's all. Yeah. And then, uh, we cut back to Dural. Um, and they're basically holed up and he's basically willing to play the long game, which is again, another, there's a tension between him realizing the prudent way of action is not to be rushing into things and his lieutenants being dicks want to rush into things. Yeah. You're, you're not going to keep our, our authority. And if you just sit around wasting time, we're not happy about this. Um, but the, luckily the guardian rises and 
Dural is like, hey, this is the opportunity we wanted because if all their electronics are knocked out, we're on an even keel. Something I liked about that is um, with any other sort of religious kind of Halo villain, and I'd have ex- I was expecting Dural to be like, this is a sign of the gods that we must make our attack now. He doesn't. He doesn't think like that. He just thinks more pragmatically, saying their electronics are down. Yeah, and, I mean, we see that later where uh, they, they notice that foreigner soldiers are attacking the humans. And they're like, well, shouldn't we join them? And he's like, well, like the foreigners have a history of biting us too. Like, and they, <laughs> they cloak it in, well, like they've been perf- they've got evil minds of its own and they, they disobey their own gods and stuff like that, um, <laughs> which is which is nice. It's like, yeah, like uh, it's the, the religious covering for Let, let's not be stupid. Yeah. Um, I like that as a nice touch to his character. So everyone else is is locked in uh, the school as the soldiers show up, and the guardian has blasted everything. And so Dural basically splits his forces. He sends some guys to just run around wrecking havoc while uh, he continues his hunt for the engineer, which is prone to drift, which, wouldn't you know it, is heading to the school. (laughs) (laughs) What a coincidence. What a coincidence. It's like everything is going to show up. And luckily, prone to drift has a plan. Uh, to protect the installation and stop the Guardian, and he only asks four kids who are all for it. So, validation. <laughs> That's all you need. Yeah, he's going to send Onyx back into slip space, and then if he can get close enough to the Guardian, he should be able to knock it out. This is sort of where it all falls apart for me a little bit. Yeah, it's. it does seem like it's one of those, those problems with, uh, I remember talking about, this uh with the kilo five trilogy and it's something that um karen travis and or 343 industries were really aware that engineers are huge huge problems from a story perspective because they can fix (laughs) everything and do a whole lot and so their solution was to have a whole bunch of the engineers disappear up and disappear and they also had a little bit about how you couldn't just let them go crazy because otherwise you end up with technology you don't understand yeah um so they they tried to hard code some limits in there but yeah at the end of the day you do have an engineer going up against a guardian and the whole the whole sequence towards the end you know where they're in the pelican and they're flying down and prone to drift flies into the guardian's face now that I, i was just reading that and thinking this book would be better off without this if they just doubled down more on Dural and Assume and that whole storyline there, instead of shoehorning in this Guardian stuff, it's a bit of it was a step too far for me. Yeah, it also bothered me that the vital electronics were in the Guardian's head. It's just like one of the so obvious, like, isn't why, it? Yeah, why is it in the head? Like you could put it anywhere else. Like, come on, guys. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but before they, everyone pile all the kids pile into a pelican and save the day. Uh, spoilers. Um, they all come to head at the school where the bully gets tortured and then killed. <laughs> so just desserts for the racist guy, <laughs> which I, I thought actually I got a little confused because they, they snap like his wrist, then they totally just break his arm. Mm. And then they're about to snap his neck. Uh, when assume Abraka like confronts his destiny and decides to reveal that he's alive. And so I thought that he arrived basically in like the classic, like, I'm going to do something bad, but wait, the hero stands forward. I'm Spartacus. And no, they, they say later on like, Oh yeah, everyone else uh, should be able to survive, but no, he's totally dead. Carl's totally dead. 
<laughs> so like the the person who gets shot in the gut survives the elite get Kasash survives getting shot but I was, I was genuinely worried at that bit when she got shot because i was like is 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 she dead please don't let her be dead she's a fantastic character and i think that's where it also starts feeling a little more like a young adult book is that she survives uh all the spartans get badly injured but aside from some no-name spartans they all survive so it's a little bit less of stakes um, but they they face down in the the cafeteria tom is ready to take him down and daryl's like well i can kill all these people aha <laughs> um so they they grab the prone to drift and run off with the zoom yeah with the, with the zoom in tow uh but they basically end up using um another native hostile fauna as a trap and basically get themselves into a position where they can turn uh the, they're basically described as panthers onto the fleeing elites uh, and so basically uh Dural and his brother gets separated uh, they they save assume and lucy arrives to basically mow everyone down uh thanks to the guy who spent a lot of time in the simulator and thus can use a gun <laughs> really accurately but I guess if you got a lot of ammo, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> nah. <laughs> I did enjoy that sequence, actually. I thought it was um, the te- the stakes and the tension, sort of the creativity that they had to show in order to, you know, sort the situation out. I thought it was quite well constructed. Yeah, and I, I, I like that it almost doesn't work, too. Uh, that yeah. they basically like, oh, wait, this is great. They're stalking them. And then the wind changes. And, like, Molly realizes, oh, wait, we're totally hosed now unless we do something <laughs> about this. Uh, yeah, it's like as soon as they finish with our, the, with the bad guys, they're going to turn to us. Yeah. And uh, Dural basically gets stabbed in the back by one of the other elites because even at this point, he's killed off <laughs> he's killed off uh, Baran because he was <laughs> too much of a dick. <laughs> yeah, but even then, someone's like, all right, going to kill you because we don't like you. And so he's, everyone assumes that he's dead uh, after the aftermath where... They knock the guardian out of the sky, and luckily everyone survives that. <laughs> yeah, they spend a lot of time worrying, like, uh, "Oh, where's the guardian stuff going to land? You know, what's the impact going to be?" Oh, okay, no, it's yeah. fine. Never which, mind. which, the guardian and the fact that apparently uh, none of the the uh, EMP'd UNSC vessels really caused any damage seemed a little strange. <laughs> yeah, it's not. I guess it's not as bad as. I mean bad things are going to happen when those those ships in orbit of earth fall down to the ground but yeah with the fusion drives potentially detonating yeah although be very lucky if none of them do that yeah i guess the question there is if they're immediately deorbited or they're in decayed orbit enough that they can somehow Mm. get their their engines back online and survive but everything's good at the end like they have friends they're all okay, um, and they've now been cut off. They have a barbecue. Yeah, they have a barbecue. Uh, and I love that. That was a wonderful ending. Uh, it, it was so unexpected. They just have this big kind of um, street festival almost. Uh, I mean, I was kind of disappointed that it was a uh, it was another to-be-continued kind of ending, but I felt that the characters' journeys were satisfactory enough as an ending well but meanwhile dural basically has survived Mm. goes back kills his other lieutenant who once again tried to betray him (laughs) and takes over and this time 
they're like, all right, well, we're stuck here now because the portals don't work once the entire installation has been shunted back to slip space. So we're stuck here. But he finds out one of the planets inside has a foreigner warship on it, and they're going to relocate their base there. And he does his best Rorschach impression, saying, "They're not. Tra- we're not trapped in here with them. They're trapped in here with us. They were with us." <laughs> to be continued yeah to be continued Um, which hopefully won't take another five years no I mean Forbeck has got uh, bad blood coming out next uh, next year I'm not sure if we don't have any details on that right no we don't don't know we don't actually know if it's going to be a follow up to Legacy of Onyx or not I would assume it's not going to be just because the bad blood name makes me think of new blood and also because that would be a really quick turnaround. Um, <laughs> it could tie those two together in a way, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's possible because New Blood tied into Lessons Learned, which tied into this. Um, so they, they're related. It'll be interesting to see. It would be weird if, you know, this was a completely disconnected, like, trilogy. Um, that's not really happened with any writer before in, on the series. So I can only imagine there will be some overlap. Yeah, so as we talked about, I think I was in the middle. I was. I thought this is the decent book. The the high school stuff. I think it gets credit for. I don't think that anyone in it is a Mary Sue because it doesn't feel like there's any no. real wish fulfillment in the characters. Um, no, they're all very flawed characters. I found. Yeah, and they they don't. While they have some. Oh, I'm actually great at this thing. Um, it doesn't really define them, and I don't think they're they're that incestuous with relations to the. <laughs> the existing characters to come off as totally feeling like, Hey, I'm, I'm great. And I'm going to be by this, this important character. Yeah. I mean, Molly's aspiration is to become a Marine, not like a Spartan, the best of the best, or even an ODST, just a Marine. Yeah. And I think the high school drama uh, to, I complained negatively about this compared to Harry Potter, but I actually think the, the high school drama of it was much better than like it, sometimes got in the fifth and sixth Harry Potter books where it was just yeah. unrelenting. Um, so I think <laughs> it was much more successful here. Now it's interesting to see these things applied to Halo because these are different perspectives and bif- different sort of storytelling methods than we've ever had before. And I think it's exciting to have, you know, they're not going to pull it off perfectly the first time, but to have it at that yeah. idea is a good way of exploring these different tensions. Yeah, I think so. And I, so I think, yeah, it was a bit of an experiment and a gamble, and it didn't quite work, but I think it was an admirable effort, and there's a lot of good stuff in here. So the question becomes, what's going to happen to Onyx from now? Because it's gone back into slip space. And you know what? The passage in which that happens is like a blink-and-you-miss-it almost moment. Yeah, Prone that, just comes back and he says... It is kind of funny <laughs> that they, there's no, like... There's no like, oh, not even a, like, wait, we did that? Like, I didn't feel anything, or, like, yeah. you feel, like machinery come alive or stuff yeah it does happen really quickly Prone just like yeah we're in slip space now by the way uh, okay and so in some ways i think this is the spiritual successor to glasslands in that it's telling its own story but it's also got to clean up some loose ends yeah <laughs> and, and and that was i think the kilo five trilogy especially glasslands gets a lot of flack because people wanted and it was i remember when we first got news, it was specifically billed as a post Ghost of Onyx story. And while it wraps up stuff in Ghost of Onyx, it's definitely not designed like a sequel to Ghost of Onyx. And this likewise yeah. 
isn't really a sequel to Ghost of Onyx or even a sequel to Glasslands. It's kind of, I think, like you said, this could happen on any other planet. It could have happened without the Guardian, but because we had this giant installation and we wanted to do <laughs> things with Halsey, we had to take it out, and now we got to figure out how to make sure it doesn't interfere with the created. And so this was the way they did it, and it was grafted onto this high school story. Um, See, that's that really sort of is emblematic of how damaging the created are for the setting, in my opinion, is you know seeing how we've had to roll back the progress of... Because the thing is, we've waited so long to see this kind of story, for them to actually do something with Onyx out of slip space. Because hitherto, it's sort of been used as, and this is where humanity found this piece of technology and that piece of technology. We've never had a story in here. And as soon as we got that story, it's been moved back into slip space. We're back in 2006. Yeah. So I can, I can see where that's disappointing uh, for people. And that it's this is a book that is really serving two masters and probably suffers a little from it. Yeah. Um, but I think it's I think it was pretty good. You know, for somebody who's picking up this book for the first time to get into the Halo universe, I think this is an in, an interesting introduction for them to sort of start off with. Yeah, that's true. I mean, because it does it does explain a whole lot. Um, mm. You can I think you can pretty much pick up everything that happens in the games. Uh, and most of the books, honestly, through this because yeah. I hit all the highlights. It's definitely divisive, but we'll see. So, so this, I was thinking, this pretty much leaves the the I would say the top dangling plot threads. Now that we got Dural shunted to the top of the pack, we've got. Um, by my reckoning, we have the the eternal question of where three four three Guilty Spark went with the hijacked ship. Because they really seem to have changed the uh, the direction that story with the Forerunners is going. Yeah, that, they they seem to have doubled down on the librarian being dead, dead, dead. <laughs> uh, and they've killed off Chanter Green as well, it would seem, uh, with the Fractures epilogue. Because when Guilty Spark originally said, I found the elusive life shaper, he never named the librarian as the life shaper. And Greg Bear said on his forum, Chanter Green, she's going to be this big major character going forward. And 343's just sort of pushed her off to the side. And she's dead now. By all accounts, yeah, she seems to have died happily of old age somewhere, um, leaving her poor son to be eternally alone. (laughs) Still is the weird part of that story to me. My my hope is that... um, their son will assume the armor, become, take up the mantle of being born Stella and return to the galaxy. Because, yeah, man, he's got nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> Except farm by himself. Yeah, that's yeah, weird. Um, and then uh, the other thing is we haven't heard anything about the uh, Usan elites. No, and I'm fascinated to hear more from them. That was from Broken Circle, which is now end of 2013, right? 2014, I think not it was November. Okay, so not as old, but that's another thing where like this impacts the galaxy. So I feel like we need to yeah. do something about it. I was really invested in Broken Circle. It's one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite books. I'd love to see that story picked up on again. Okay, I'm learning all about you, Broken Circle, and uh, <laughs> Broken Circle in this book, high up on this business <laughs> list. Although then again, I've I've been having arguments with people who really like. Buckell stuff, and I have been historically lukewarm on his. So, yeah, so I've been, I've sort of flip flopped on my opinion over uh, Buckle's stuff. You know, he's 
he's got some good writing chops every now and then, but it's wrapped in this overall package that's that I'm, I'm never sure how to react to. Yeah, I think I think I'm still. I've been meaning to do a a, a big long, grand reread of all the books in sequence. Uh, for a while now, <laughs> Good luck be, with that. there'll be a article series podcast, something or other. I'm forwarded on about that, so stay tuned. But <laughs> I'm still of the mind that if you could just remove one book from existence, it would either—I mean, besides Legends, Legends would be my top pick—but um, <laughs> it would probably be the Cole Protocol because I find it just an unnecessary book that is, for all the things that are in it that should be interesting, was not. <laughs> Mm, I like some parts of um, detailing Fell's backstory when he was more of an asshole. Well, that's that's yeah, that's the whole thing. It's like Fell's backstory, more of Keys, Gray Team, the people we had like up until basically. Actually, Gray Team's another long-standing plot thread that finally got yeah. addressed. So that was another hanging thread. But like all those in theory, I would be totally for, and the book just kind of left me cold. Yeah, I do like Dirt. I think dirt is my favorite thing that he's done, mm. um, which ends up being the backstory of the rookie. <laughs> <laughs> Whether that's necessary or not uh, is for people to decide. I think that about wraps it up. Uh, you've been doing a bunch of stuff I've seen on Twitter and stuff. You want to plug something for people to check out your recent work? <laughs> Uh, recent work, yeah, I've done two recent articles. One was, uh, the most recent one was the uh, celebrating 16 years of Halo with 16 obscure law facts. So that would be stuff like uh, the Forerunner's love of hats, Del Rio's original appearance, various other things that uh, aren't sort of in the mainstream community conscience. I was disappointed that you uh, didn't put like a little, at the end, like one of those little teen magazine keys. Like if you know zero to 10, you're not a true fan, <laughs> like 11 to 15, or et cetera. Oh, I don't like to be judgmental like that, but uh, I'll, I'll keep that in mind for the future. And the other one I did was a complete history of Bungie and 343's uh, evolution of writing the Forerunners which was interesting to go back to because we've got a lot of sources dating back to the late 90s of how the Halo universe developed and how it was written and who it was written by. Mm -hmm. So that's my other piece, yeah. Yeah, and I'll put links to those in the show notes so people can check it out. Thank you very much. All right, well, that wraps it up for the show today. You can uh, subscribe to us via iTunes or follow us on Twitter uh, or catch episodes on YouTube by following the handle Forward Dawn on those respective platforms. If you liked what you heard, uh, show notes will be posted at forwarddawn.com, and that's where you'll find uh, links to the rest of our written content. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>